First John chapter two, in verse one, John writes, technia, which is translated, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. In our little letter, the apostle John challenges us to walk in the light. You'll remember in verse 5 it says, This is the message which we heard from him and declare to you that God is light. And in verse 7 it says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Our first step in the walking in the light means walking away. From sin, look what in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So walking in the light must begin by walking away from sin. This means confessing sin. Remember, we already learned what that means. It's agreeing with God about our sin. But it also means forsaking sin. In chapter 2, verse 1, when John writes, so that you may not sin. That very simple phrase means you will try to stay free from sin. You'll avoid it. You'll refuse it. But many of you ask the question right off the bat. Well, then why do I still continue to sin? It's an important question and it's a reasonable question. Why do you? Why do I? Why do we continue in sin? Because according to John, we have not yet been made perfect. And by that, I mean we are perfect in Christ, but we have not yet been made perfect in the sense that we haven't entered into the process, if you will, of glorification. You see, the truth is every single person has been saved from the penalty of sin. And we are being saved from the power of sin. One day we will be saved from the presence of sin. When we're saved from the presence of sin, we will experience a new body in a new place. But we are fallen people and we live in a fallen world. Because we've not yet been made perfect. John writes this letter to answer questions. And so for the person who's afraid to ask questions, let me encourage you that the text itself, the Bible itself invites you to ask questions and expect answers. Do Christians have pressing doubts about their status with God? Their relationship to the church? And even to the world, do we sometimes struggle with sin and have doubts about our salvation and, and we wonder whether or not our sin will get us kicked out of God's family? 
When I first became a Christian and I was instructed to read the Gospel of John and 1 John, I read 1 John chapter 1 and 2, and by the time I got to chapter 3, my heart was filled with joy because my biggest question on my mind was, what if I go to heaven and they decide they don't want me anymore? Can you imagine getting saved and accepting Christ as your Savior and you're knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door and they go, sure, welcome. And then you get there and they decide, "Mm, maybe not. Haven't you ever wondered that? Can I get kicked out of heaven? In 1 John chapter 3, it says, Behold what manner of love the fathers lavished or bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. Therefore it does not... Therefore, we do not know, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, we're the children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know this, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. The reason why you get to go to heaven is because Jesus loves you and died for you. And the reason why you get to stay in heaven is because one day you will be like him in In reality, not the second person of the Trinity, but you'll be a glorified person. So we struggle with doubts. We wonder about salvation. We wonder if we're going to get kicked out of God's family. And and we sometimes will face guilt or shame because of things we've said and things we've done. Because for whatever reason, we choose not to love or we choose not to forgive and sometimes Christians struggle with old habits addictions and sins so when you become a Christian and you walk with God and you desire to maintain fellowship with him what normally happens as a Christian you begin to hate sin. John Newton was a slave trader turned minister of the gospel. Most of you may not know his name, but you know the most famous song that he ever wrote. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. John Newton wrote, I am not what I ought to be, but I am not what I once was. And it is by the grace of God that I am what I am. John Newton recognized, you know what? The place where I came from is different from the place where I am. And even the place where I am is still not where I want to be. Is that true of you? Could you say that? Could you say, hey, you know what? I've taken a little trip. I've taken a walk away from sin in friendship and fellowship with God, but the walk isn't over, the journey isn't over. And so John is going to remind us about sin and how it's our great enemy. I want you to think about this though in the context. Fellowship is our goal. Sin is our enemy. James Long writes, quote, When we sin, something beautiful happens. And I've got a parenthetical note. Don't think for a moment sin is beautiful. But when we sin, something beautiful happens. What is that? Jesus comes to our defense. 
So should we sin so that Jesus can come to our defense? No. He writes, something beautiful happens. Jesus comes to our defense. It's not that God the Father and the Son get into a scuffle over our wrongdoing. The Father against us and the Son for us. It's not even that there's a big debate about it. With the young attorney, Jesus winning out. God, we might say, agrees with himself that Jesus' sacrifice paid for our sin, unquote. And that's exactly right. The apostle is going to speak. And as he speaks, he's going to wed two different ideas, a command and then comfort, exhortation and then consolation. He is going to give us our objective and then he's going to give us a promise. The two parts are what we must do. And then the second part is what God has done for us in his infinite grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're sitting there and you're thinking there's nothing for me to do, then you would be incorrect. And if you're thinking there's no one to help you, you would also be incorrect. But there is something that you must do. You must be able to say in your heart and mean it, I want to have fellowship with God. And if that's true of you, then you also have to be willing to say, I'm willing to confess my sin and forsake my sin in order to have fellowship with God. And so look what it says in the opening verse. He says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And that expression, my little children, is a term in the ancient world and in this particular language of a term of endearment. It was a, a word that an older person would say to a younger person as a form of affection. This isn't the apostle wagging his finger and raising his voice. This isn't some sinister grandfather who's slapping around the grandchildren. That's not what's happening. I'm going to suggest to you that this is written when John is not at the beginning of his ministry or in the middle of his ministry, but he only has a few short live, years to live. I'm going to suggest to you that most of his life and most of his ministry is over. He's very, very old at this particular time in his life when he's writing. And he's writing at the very end of his life and he wants to leave some gracious instructions to the people that he cares about. And so when he says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin, I need to remind you of where we've come from. John has addressed the critics of Christianity. Remember in chapter one, what we've already learned. Jesus is real. He's a real person. We've also learned that sin is real and that it hurts us. 
fellowship with God is possible. But in order for fellowship to take place, we have to know and trust Jesus. Sin has to be dealt with. Sin has to be dealt with because sin breaks fellowship with a holy God. How can we maintain fellowship with God if we continue to walk in sin? John's simple answer, we can't. So what is it that we do? Fellowship must not be confused with relationship. Remember what I already told you. We enter into relationship with God when we're born again. We have fellowship with God when we walk with God after being born again. Earlier in 1 John, we noticed that coming to Christ doesn't reduce our sense of sin, but it heightens our sense of sin. We're more aware than ever that we're sinners. And so, Again, the idea is you begin to understand and you develop a hypersensitivity towards the fact that we don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit and we don't want to grieve God. We have fellowship with God when we walk with him. Earlier in 1 John, we noticed that coming to Christ gives us a profound sense and a keen sense of his presence and of his love. When John Wesley left home, his mother Susanna is said to have written these words in the flyleaf of his Bible. She wrote, sin will keep you from this book, but this book will keep you from sin. You see, sometimes when you're tempted to disobey God, or continue in sin, you close your Bible. It frightens you because it reveals to you the condition that you're in. And so John, again, writes as an old man, not scolding children, but rather as a man filled with affection for his beloved children. He desires to love them into goodness, not to scare them into goodness. You've probably met people who would try to scare you. Don't you realize that if you continue in this, you're going to go to hell, you're going to rot in hell, you're going to burn in hell? Don't get me wrong. People who reject the gospel and they reject God and they don't enter into a right relationship with God in Christ, the sad, terrible, horrifying news is that they are going to go to hell. But it wasn't the threat of hell that provoked me into becoming a Christian. I've said this to you many times. It was the possibility that God could love someone like me, that he could forgive someone like me, that God was prepared to forgive me and love me. John desires to love them into goodness. This isn't a guilt trip or a railing accusation. So what is John saying? He's saying what you already know, that we're in a spiritual struggle. That the truth is that we are sinful, but that we shouldn't sin. We have a sinful nature. We live in a sinful world. We're encouraged to resist sin and to fight against sin. But for many, many Christians, they make the choice, I'm not going to resist sin and I'm not going to fight against sin. 
But the Bible says you must resist and you must fight against it. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, that, that we take every thought captive. We cast down imaginations. We take every thought captive for Christ. In other words, he knows that there is a mental war that we wage in our brain. An emotional war that is being waged in our heart. Our physical bodies want to rebel and disobey. So what happens if we do sin? Look what he says. I write to you so that you may not sin. You would think at this point that I don't have to tell you what sin is. But in the interest of brevity and being honest with the text, we're going to have to get to that. However, he says, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin or sins, we have an advocate with the Father. So what happens if we do sin? We, we have both an advocate and a provision in the person of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? What does John mean by all of this? The word translated advocate is para, kleton. It's two words in the Greek language, a prefix and a suffix. Para means with. Kletos or kleton means to come alongside of. Together, it means someone who's willing to stand with you. Someone who's willing to come alongside with you. The reason why I want to bring this up right from the start is that the mental battle that you have to fight and the emotional battle that you have to fight and the physical resistance that you have to offer, the Lord wants to help you with this in your mind, in your feelings, in your body. The truth is that we're sinful. The truth is that God is going to give us a provision. The purpose means he is going to help you in every way possible. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Because some of you might be thinking, well, if he wants to help me in every way possible, then he'll take away the temptation. He'll take away the desire. He'll take away this. He'll take away that. Well, guess what? God might just do any of those things or all of those things. But he might not. It could very well be that God will allow you to make choices because he values your choices. But here's the point. The purpose of our friendship and our fellowship with Jesus to, is to help us. The word also is a word that was used to describe the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, verse 16, where Jesus says, I'm going to go away, but when I go away, I'm going to send another helper to you, even the Holy Spirit who will be with you and who will be in you. And I've said again this to you over and over again. We have three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have three great champions, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Bible has been written and has given us instructions on how we can engage the enemy and overcome the enemy and experience victory. And so, the word was also used in a number of different ways in the ancient world. That word, parakleton, could be used of a friend 
who comes along in times of distress or trouble or confusion. Some of you have friends who you can call them when you get in trouble. You can call them and you can say, could you please help me? Could you please stand with me? Could you please just remind me of who I am and what God has done for me in my life? It was also used of a commander of an army to motivate his troops when they were discouraged or in despair. It was also used of an attorney who pleads the case of his client. If we're to boil the word down to just a single descriptor, if I were to take one word and just simply say, this is the one word that best describes the word, it's the word helper. So when he says, I write to you so that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, we have a helper with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so, what does all of this mean? We go back to this issue. I'm writing so that you may not Sin. I need you to pause for just a moment. Instead of defining what sin is, I want to begin our discussion a little bit differently. Let's begin with what sin does. What does sin do? In this context, it breaks our fellowship with God. Why has he written these things to you? So that you can have fellowship with God. Remember in verse 3? That which we've seen to you and declare to you. So that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with God. And with Jesus. So remember what this book is saying. It's an invitation to fellowship with God. It's an invitation to fellowship with each other. What does sin do? It breaks fellowship. We experience a loss of light in verse 6. We experience a loss of joy in chapter 1, verse 4. We, we experience a loss of righteousness in 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. We experience a loss of love in 1 John chapter 2, verse 5. We experience a loss of confidence in 1 John chapter 3, verse 19. It's even possible that we can experience a loss of health or a physical damage, or even our life. I found a quote, and I didn't include it in my initial study. I just found it when I was on the radio this afternoon. It was a quote by Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon said, Christians can never sin cheaply. They pay a heavy price for iniquity. Transgression destroys peace of mind. It obscures fellowship with Jesus. It hinders prayer. It brings darkness over the soul. Therefore, be not the serf and the bondman of sin. It's the ancient way of saying, don't be a slave to a sin or don't be a slave to sin. Don't be employed by sin. And then having said all of that, he says, and if anyone sins, you might think, 
I don't understand. He's just asked me not to sin, but he gives me a way out. I want you to think about the verse a little bit differently. I want you to look at it in a wholesome way, in the way that John means it. I want you to think for just a moment. John is saying that sin is real. You already know that's true. But he's also saying that forgiveness is real. We stumble, we fall, sin is real. The possibility of forgiveness is available. We can't escape the command of Jesus. Remember when he, when he says, go and sin no more. In John chapter 5, verse 14, when he's talking to the woman at the well, and he says, go and sin no more. And you might think, okay, and then you do. There seems to be two possibilities as we approach this discussion of sin. We can either be too harsh or we can be too lenient. How do we avoid those two extremes? How do we avoid overcomplicating this? How do we avoid not taking it seriously? John Stott writes, Too great a lenience would seem almost to encourage sin in the Christian by stressing God's provision for the sinner. An exaggerated severity, on the other hand, would either deny the possibility of a Christian sinning or refuse him forgiveness and the restoration if he fails, unquote. To what do we do? How do we approach this? What if I suggest to you we do exactly what the text itself is going to tell us to do? Let me try and make this as simple as possible. Are you ready to take your true and false test? It's going to be really easy. Simple. Ready? I'm going to ask a question. You're going to tell me if it's true or false. God is just. True. God hates sin. Good job. Good job. God is love. He loves human beings. Human beings are weak, damaged, hurt, sinful. Good job. You passed the test. So what does God do? In light of everything that I just said, what does God do? He sends his own son to die for our sins. These very sins. And then he appoints Jesus as our legal counsel to advocate on our behalf. And what gives Jesus the right to be our helper? Because he's the righteous one. And what does that mean? It's a reference to his righteous character. But it means something else. Jesus is the only one who has the right to stand before the righteous and holy God. John knows this. You see, there are people who don't know that. There are people who think that they have the right to stand for themselves before God. 
Remember, God is holy and God is perfect and only a perfect person can stand in God's presence. And this is the reason why human beings must approach God through Jesus. Jesus alone is perfect and righteous. Jesus alone can stand in the court of God. Jesus alone can plead our case. Now I want you to think about that. This is the advocacy of Jesus for sinning believers. This isn't for salvation for the unbeliever, but rather this is a provision for the sinning believer. And each of you should go, hallelujah. I want you to think about it for just a moment. And the way that I'm going to put it might surprise you. Have you ever met someone who was only interested in you once they could sell you whatever it is they're selling you? Or once they could get you to buy whatever it is that they think that, that you need to buy or to get you into their church or to get you into their friendship or fellowship. They're trying to, 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 or to get you to like you on your Facebook page or whatever. And then they just sort of ignore you for the rest of your life. Jesus isn't that way. Jesus has never lost interest in you. Isn't that interesting? Jesus has never lost interest in you. He speaks to the Father on your behalf. Don't think of Jesus as simply the perfect Savior, although he is, who lived the perfect life, although he did, who died on the cross, which he in fact did for your sins. And then he finished with the affairs of man, and having finished with the wicked world... He's done with you. It's not true. He still has a burden for you. He thinks about you every moment of every day. He cares about you personally, individually. He loves you. He bears your burdens on his heart. He's still talking to God about you and for you. He's still pleading your case. The way I like to think of it is we're represented by the law firm of the Holy Spirit and Son. Jesus has his offices in heaven. And he's placed the Holy Spirit on permanent retainer inside of your heart. The Holy Spirit pleads the cause of Jesus to a hostile world. And Jesus pleads your case before a holy God. The image of a lawyer might generate a lot of different images for different people. As a matter of fact, some of you may not have had a good experience with lawyers. And so even by me using the word Jesus and lawyer in the same sentence, you find offensive. And I apologize for that. What's the definition of a lawyer? I know this is where I usually will do a whole long string of lawyer jokes. But I'm going to spare you. But I have to tell you at least one story. There was a country boy who once asked his father, Paul, what's a lawyer? And his father said, 
A lawyer, my boy, is a man who induces two men to strip down for a fight. And then he runs away with their clothes. I know. Some of you didn't get it. I'm sorry for that. Because if you can't get this one, I don't know how I'm going to present the most difficult part of this message in just a few moments. But Jesus isn't that kind of a lawyer. Jesus isn't the kind of lawyer who's trying to trick you or take advantage of you. And so look what it says in verse 2. It says, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The simple thing to say at this point is, Jesus is our Savior. That's verse 1. Jesus is our substitute. That's verse 2. In heaven, the Lord doesn't plead that we're innocent. Or try to tell God the Father that there's extenuating circumstances that he has to take into consideration. Jesus pleads guilty. And then he offers his own death on the cross as the grounds for our acquittal. So, what does Jesus plead? He doesn't plead the reputation of the believer. He doesn't plead the good works of the believer. He doesn't plead not guilty that the believer committed no sin when in fact he or she did sin. He doesn't plead the personal righteousness of the believer. He doesn't plead that the believer has been as good as he or she could possibly be and that you just simply have to understand that this is what you have to deal with. That's not what's happening. Jesus pleads his own righteousness and death. So if you're wondering what Jesus is saying to God in heaven about you, it might come as a shock and as a surprise. It has little to do with you and it has everything to do with him. It has everything to do with who he is and what he's done. And so when it says, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, the word propitiation is Kind of hard to say. And even more hard to understand. But I'm going to give you a chance. On the count of three, everyone say propitiation. One, two, three. Propitiation. You get an A plus. Good job. Oddly enough, in the original language, it's a far simpler word. In the Greek language, this word is hilasmos. Hilasmos. And the verb form has three basic meanings. Number one, when it's used for men or for human beings as the subject, the word means to placate, pacify, or appease. The idea is one of injury that requires vengeance or restitution. And so the idea is injury which requires compensation or injury which requires payment so that the person will be satisfied. When someone's been offended or injured, it means to placate or pacify. And so in the ancient world, the idea was when the gods were injured, 
they had to be offered a sacrifice. Number two, if the subject is God, the verb means to forgive. For then the meaning is that God himself provides the means whereby the lost relationship can be restored. The third meaning is related to the first. The verb means to perform some deed by which the taint or the stain of of guilt can be removed. Imagine you've got two parties and one has been injured and you're trying to figure out how can I make this injury go away? If you've ever hurt someone, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, a close friend, a person at work, something happened and you're trying to figure out what can I do to make this right? What do you do when God is the one who's been injured? I read in a newspaper article that uh, Paul Ryan is the new speaker of the house in the uh, Congress. And it says that the first thing that he did when he occupied the speaker's house was he had to figure out a way to get rid of the stench of cigarette smoke. Apparently John Boehner was a chain smoker and the whole place was filled with smoke and everything smelled like cigarette smoke. If you can imagine injury, spiritual injury like a stench, or a rotten, putrid odor. And you're trying to figure out a way to make the odor go away. And some of you might have been involved with something where something gets smoke damaged. And it's just so utterly ruined that you have to throw it away. Or worse, the smell of death, the sickening smell of decomposition. What kind of extra strength odor eater can make the stench go away? What can remove the smell? The word can mean what will it take to pacify God but also disinfect the sinner? So think about sin in in two ways. Number one, the stench that it produces in the nostril of God. Now, imagine that you decide that you're going to spray yourself with Lysol to make the odor go away. Could it provide a temporary cure to somehow at least change the odor? Yes. But do you think God's going to be able to smell past the Lysol? And will it remove What's causing the odor to begin with? The answer is no. And so God has to do two things. He has to figure out a way to satisfy himself. And then he has to figure out a way to make you clean. That's what this word means. God figured out a way to satisfy himself and make you clean That's what he did with Jesus. Barclay writes, when John says that Jesus is the hilosmos, propitiation for our sins, he is, we think, bringing all these different sins into one. Jesus is the person through whom guilt for past sin and defilement from present sin are removed. 
The great basic truth behind this word is that through Jesus Christ, man's fellowship with God is first restored and then maintained. Jesus restores the friendship and the fellowship and then he maintains the friendship and fellowship. In brief, propitiation then means to turn away anger with a sacrifice or a covering that satisfies. This is what makes reconciliation possible. Remember, God is holy and just and he's perfect love. God has to execute justice. He must judge sin. He must condemn sin. There's only one way that God's holy character can be satisfied in every way. A perfect and an ideal man has to accept the guilt and the punishment for sin. And that's exactly what Jesus has done for you. That is exactly what Jesus has done for you. The perfect man can step forward and bear the punishment for sin and satisfy the justice of God. In a resource that I have called the Preacher's Outline and Sermon Bible, we read, this is why God accepts Jesus in his death. He says, as the sacrifice for our sins, as the covering for our sins, as the satisfaction of our sin, as the payment for the penalty of sin, for the appeasement of the wrath against sin. And so in that one simple sentence, in verse 2, where it says, and he himself is our, remember the word, propitiation, that one word means sacrifice for sin, covering for sin, satisfactory payment for sin, appeasement for the anger and the wrath against sin. The bottom line, the God of heaven is satisfied. I want you to think about this for just a moment. God's completely satisfied with Jesus. And because he's completely satisfied with Jesus, you don't have to be worried about you being the satisfaction. So, now think about this for just a moment. Does that mean that we continue in sin? It can't mean that. Remember that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now we have to go all the way back to verse 1. Remember the opening sentence? I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now I'm going to have to ask you the question. What is that? What is sin? What does that mean? I'm going to suggest to you it means to accept what God rejects and to reject what God accepts. Sin is disobedience to God's nature, to God's character, to God's will. Sin is disobedience to conscience. Sin means our lives are governed by passions and desires rather than by the truth. 
And so when he says, I'm writing these things so that you will not sin, he's giving you an invitation so that you can desire fellowship more than anything else. Sin is condemned and hated by God. He opposes it. Sin is contrary to his nature. He commands us not to do it. Sin is the very thing that brought Jesus from heaven to the earth. Sin is the very thing that caused him to be arrested. Sin is the very thing that caused him to be beaten. Sin is the very thing that caused him to be placed in a prison, that placed him to be... that. that placed him in a, in a place where he would have his back ripped open by a cat of nine tails. It was sin that placed him on a wooden cross. It was sin that caused his hand to be affixed to this piece of wood and to be suspended between heaven and earth and then to be jilted and then to pour out his life. That's what sin did. It caused his suffering and it caused his death. And so the apostle is going to try and make sense to you why this is such a bad idea for you. How it dishonors the gospel. And he's going to argue, how can you profess love for God and not profess hatred for sin? Because sin always leads to an evil conscience. One Bible writer said, quote, John was reminding all believers that Christ's atoning sacrifice is sufficient for the sins of every person in the world. In verse 2, look what it says. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only. But also for the whole world. Why do you suppose he adds that? Why does he add this bit of information? How far does God's forgiveness reach? How far does the cleansing go? John asserts that Jesus died not simply for John's sin and not simply for the people who are reading this book, but for the entire world. Martin Luther brought this point home when he exclaimed, quote, you too are part of the world so that your heart cannot deceive itself and think the Lord died for Peter and Paul, but not for me. While Christ's death is sufficient for every sin of every person who ever lived or who ever will live, it becomes effectual only for those who confess their sin, accept the sacrifice, embrace Christ as the Lord and Savior. John isn't teaching universal salvation, that everyone is saved by Christ, whether he or she believes it or not. We know this from John's statement in chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. And so for the... For the person who might be tempted to think, well, if Jesus died for everyone, then why isn't everyone saved? Because in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, look what it says. They went out from us, but they were not of us. 
In the earlier chapter, in, in actually chapter 2, verse 18, John says, little children, it's the last hour. And as you've, as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come by which we know that this is the last hour. Obviously, Antichrist had not found forgiveness. They haven't found acceptance. They didn't experience cleansing. This passage can't be pressed to mean universal salvation or pardon apart from the gospel and apart from faith. Paul will write, you're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God you have to enter into the covenant by accepting the free gift of salvation. The Bible must be true and in order for it to be true and not be filled with irreconcilable contradictions has to mean that people have to come to God by faith, to Christ by faith. Otherwise, how do we explain the Antichrists? How do we explain if everyone's automatically forgiven and restored? What are we to think of chapter 3, verse 10, when it says, and the children of the devil are made known. Anyone who doesn't do what's right and is not a child of God, neither is anyone who doesn't love his brother. How do we cope with statements that say that they're sins that lead to death. What in the world is John talking about? He means the death of Jesus is sufficient to wipe out the sins of this world and a million worlds that are just like it. Can Christ's death take care of every single one of your sins? The answer is yes. And every person's sin in this auditorium, yes. In this state, yes. In this country, yes. In this world, yes. It's from the time of Adam, marching forward to the very last breath that the very last person takes. The answer is yes. So what does all of this mean? Each person has to come to Christ and trust him. A savior, an advocate. Jesus is the only one who has the right to stand before God and plead our case. You'll remember in Luke 18, 13, where it says, The publican standing afar off wouldn't so much as lift up his eyes to heaven, but he smote his breast, saying, God be merciful. The word is hilasmos, translated in verse 1, propitiation. God, be merciful, be my covering, be the satisfying solution. I don't have any way, any real way to come to you. I have no way to be accepted by you. The only way that I can come to God is on the terms that you have prescribed. And now all of a sudden we understand what Jesus said in John chapter 14 when he said, I'm the way the truth and the life and no one comes to me or no one comes to the Father except by me. The Bible doesn't seem to say 
that God must be reconciled to man. The Bible seems to say that God is already a friend of man. That God loves you. That God has made a provision for you in the person of Jesus Christ. In this situation of estrangement, God is not the culprit. Human beings are the culprit. Why won't people come to Christ? Why is it the human being who is at odds with God, who ignores God, who neglects God, who rejects God? The Bible, according to the Bible, man cannot find a way to be reconciled to God. And so the Bible says, God will find a way to be reconciled to you. He'll find a way to get to you. He'll find a way to forgive you and reconcile you to himself. That's the point. So what does all of this mean as a Christian? Well, it means... That we admit our need for cleansing in verse 8. Remember, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We have to admit that we have to be cleansed. We remember Jesus' blood is the basis for cleansing in verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We confess the range of cleansing. It's as wide and as deep as it needs to be. To embrace the entire world, including your world. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. You know what's really interesting about that passage as well? The Bible never allows us to forget about others. Notice what John's doing even in the text. The love of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, fellowship with Jesus is available to me. And then he says, it's available to you. And then he says, it's available to anyone who's willing to listen. We who know the good news are under strict orders to pass it on. You see, you've already heard the news. God's willing to love me and forgive me and make me have a right relationship with him. And our responsibility is to share that with others. We don't make false claims about being sinless. We resist sin. We remain concerned about our behavior. We live lives with profound appreciation that what God thinks really matters. And so the Christian realizes with joy and gratitude that when he or she sins, We don't have to present ourselves as a hopeless case. We don't have to go, hey, look, I know God has forgiven people in the past, but you don't know just how wretched I am. Well, again, the presence of Jesus before the Father guarantees forgiveness and secures restoration. So Jesus isn't simply our lawyer. He's also our substitution. He's also the satisfaction that we need. You know what the problem is? The problem is, so what do we do? What do we do to keep from sinning? The secret is found in verse 7. But if we walk in the light 
as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. What does that mean? To walk in the light means we're willing to be honest and sincere. Do you know what that word sincere means? It's two words, sine with a out, sire, wax. In the ancient world, when a person, you know, they didn't have photography back in those days. So if you wanted a family portrait in marble, you know, you would, you would make a little face. And as you're making the face, sometimes you would hit the nose just right and it would fall off. And so rather than do a whole new statue, they would take wax and then they would take marble and they would make a paste, put the nose back on. And then they would sell it. And when the sun would beat down on the statue, all of a sudden the wax would begin to melt in the statue's nose and it would fall off. And so in the marketplace, you would ask, is this sinecire? Is this without wax? Is this what I see is what I'm getting? That's what he's saying. You can walk in the light. You can be honest. You can be sincere. Paul prayed that his friends would be sincere and without offense in Philippians 1.10. But some people aren't willing to walk in the light or be tested by the word of God. Because when we're open and sincere and we're willing to have our attitude and our behavior conform to what the Bible says and to what the character of Jesus says and what the teaching of Jesus says, we have nothing to hide. But if we're unwilling to be tested, then we have plenty to hide. So to walk in the light means to be honest with each other and with God. You know, I met Jerry Bridges many years ago at a Christian booksellers convention, and I remembered something that he wrote years ago in his book on the pursuit of holiness. He wrote, one day as I was reading the second chapter of 1 John, this is what we just read, he wrote, I realized that my personal life's objective regarding holiness was less than that of John. He was saying, in effect, make it your aim not to sin. As I thought about this, I realized that deep in my heart, my real aim was not to sin very much. He wrote, I thought about this. Can you imagine a soldier going into battle with the aim of not getting hit very much? For some Christians, that's their goal. It's not to just sin very much. But according to John, the Christian will long to know and do God's will. To walk in the light means to spend time in God's word and discover his will. To walk in the light means to abide in his love. To walk in the light means to, and we're going to sneak ahead to next week just very quickly. Now by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments. That's what it means to walk in the light. Be honest. Be sincere. Walk in love. Obey his commandments. There was a Peanuts cartoon that I remembered. It pictured Lucy. And Linus. Look what it says. 
Boy, said Lucy, look at it rain. What if it floods the whole world? It'll never do that, Linus replied confidently. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that there would never happen again, and the sign of the promise is the rainbow. You've taken a great load off my mind, said Lucy with a relieved smile. Sound theology, pontificated Linus, has a way of doing that. What does that mean? Will God love me? The Bible says yes. Will God forgive me? The Bible says yes. What if I sin? You have an advocate, a helper with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. As sure as the promise in Genesis that God would never flood the world ever again is as sure as the promise that's been given to you that you can walk in fellowship that you don't have to sin and even if you do there's help for you there's help along the way we're going to have communion in just a moment all I ask is that you Hold it till we all have an opportunity to take together. You know, if you find yourself here and you find yourself in a constant state of sin, a constant state of wickedness, a constant state of estrangement, a constant state where you're distant, distant, distant from fellowship, that your life is just a roller coaster ride. Sin and confession and sin and confession and sin and, and confession. And you've never been able to have an abundant life. I want you to examine your heart. I want you to ask yourself the question. Are you willing to confess your sin and resist sin and forsake sin and appropriate the resources that are available to you in the Father, in the Son, in the Holy Spirit? Do you value fellowship with God? Remember what I said last week? You can't hold on to sin and hope at the same time. And you can't hold on to sin and fellowship at the same time. If you want hope, if you want fellowship, it's time to let it go. I'm going to pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. I pray that they would be willing to confess their sin, forsake their sin, walk away from it, resist it, and experience a renewal of friendship and fellowship. Lord, I pray for each and every person. They know the true condition of their heart. If you've experienced sin and you want to be forgiven, just simply ask. The Bible says he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, as we contemplate and think carefully about the sacrifice of Jesus, that it doesn't just simply satisfy our sin in the past, 
but that you're willing to take care of our fellowship in the present and both our relationship and fellowship in the future. In Jesus' name, amen.